0: Hello, and welcome to Talk Evidence, our monthly roundup of what's happening in the world of EBM. I'm Duncan Jarvis, multimedia editor for the BMJ, and I'm back after having a nice long holiday in Australia, in the sun, Uh, and in my absence- It's all right for film. Yeah, it was was very all right. Um, In my absence, I heard that you two were going off your own little tangents during the podcast. (laughs) So I'm back to crack the whip, Um, starting that is, by getting you to, to introduce yourself. Helen, off you go.
1: I'm Helen MacDonald, um, UK research editor for the BMJ.
2: No, not yet. You're research editor on Monday. <laughs> but for by BMJ. the time this
1: goes out I will be. <laughs> yes. That's what that was explains my pause. <laughs> <laughs> Carefully thinking of calendars here.
0: <laughs> and Carl?
2: In the future I'm not sure what I'll be, but right now um Director of Centre for <laughs> Evidence Based Medicine, Editor in Chief of BMJ Evidence Based Medicine.
0: So last week we went off on a tangent talking about how difficult it was to find things that were definitively to start and to stop. Um, but this week we're We've going to done be better. back on track. Yeah. Now Helen, you are bringing, as uh, you often do, one of our rapid recommendations. This time it's I on shoulders. I am. Shoulder I'm surgery. enormously
1: intellectually conflicted in the fact that um i I am a rapid recommendations person um so i would bring this wouldn't i but i think that i we've we've covered something this week um which we can fairly definitively stop
0: unless you're an editorialist writing about
1: uh yes i'll come on to that Shall i tell you about the evidence first yes so this um this is a clinical practice guideline looking at subacromial decompression surgery for adults with shoulder pain. Um, So the people that this is um, looking at are adults with shoulder pain that's been going on for more than three months Uh, and often that's labeled subacromial pain syndrome sometimes it's labeled rotator cuff disease it's a bit of a mixed bag um, of diagnoses. Can I
2: just declare that I'm actually a patient on this one I have got I mine is painful arc syndrome Mm Mm-hmm. I take my shoulder, my arm, my right arm, it goes up, up, and it's all right. And about 90 degrees, it goes, oh, my gosh, it's really painful. Well, this is
1: exactly for you. Have you had it for more than three months?
2: I've had it for about a year now. Okay.
0: <laughs> and for everyone listening, that was a very uh, visual. Yeah. Sorry, <laughs> Carl's face as he lifts his arm with a picture.
2: So the
1: question is, if you're in this position, a bit like Carl, should you have subacromial decompression surgery, an arthroscopic procedure typically to uh, try and improve the situation, Or should you proceed with some non-operative management strategies, which might include physiotherapy, um, other guided exercise programmes, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or steroid injections? Um, So, supported by two systematic reviews, one that looked at the benefit and harm of surgery compared to these options, and another that looked at the minimally important differences on pain and function or quality of life that, that people in this position value, um, this panel came up with a strong recommendation against doing subacromial decompression surgery.
0: So just before you get into that, Helen, you mentioned their minimally important differences, and that's something on the rapid recommendations that we've been really trying to do and bring in that sort of patient-centered approach to defining what the problem is. So um, could you just explain a little bit more about what that is and what they found in this case?
1: yes so i mean a bit like what it says on the tin if carl's got his his painful um arc the question is how how much better would a particular procedure have to make him in order in order for him to deem it worthwhile
0: i mean what that sounds like is you know how do you tell if something is 20% better or 30% better. Well, I don't
2: think, think, I think, you know, this is an important point, and I think this is a crucial element where you involve patients and the public in the decision for the outcomes. I mean, to me, really, the pain is a big issue. I can sort of do away with the functioning bit, but the pain can be certain times are like, excruciating. So if I'm going to go through surgery, I probably won't want to be pain-free at the end of it within a specified time frame of, say, two to three months.
0: Mm. And uh, was that uh, reflected in what our patients panel thought of um, what a minimally important difference was?
1: So they found that a minimally important difference for patients would be an improvement of around 1.5 on a, on a pain scale. Um, and surgery after a year made no important difference on that scale mm. because people in the group that had surgery had an improvement of um, around 2.6 and people who did not have surgery had an improvement of 2.9.
2: So this is a really important point where it goes from that statistical to clinical significance, isn't it? I, I, I'm i going to get away from the word minimally. It's just too difficult for me to say. I could think about does it make a difference?
1: Yes, in essence, that's what yeah, it means. That, and,
2: and any outcome you look at in any piece of research, you should say, Does this actually make a difference? And often it might be statistically significant, but actually it is meaningless. And in this situation, you're saying such a small gap, even if it was statistically significant, is irrelevant. Mm -hmm.
0: Helen, you said in there that um, minimally important difference um, was barely different between people who had the surgery uh, and weren't. How has that not been studied before? Do we not know what kind of happens to shoulders over time, whether they just spontaneously kind of get a bit better.
1: I don't know the answer to that.
0: Carl, do you? No, I don't know the answer to that. Perhaps call someone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Phone a friend.
2: It's interesting, though. We often intervene because what we're short, trying to do is shorten the natural history. People want to get better tomorrow, but actually, you know, understanding how long it will take helps you in understanding the journey.
3: What we know about shoulder pain in the population is a bit ricky so i think we know a little bit more about people who attend healthcare. so at least where the pain is that severe that they feel they need some help with that we don't have very good long term outcome but we do we do have quite consistent outcomes for let's say six to twelve months after first contacting a general practitioner And that's in countries where there is a primary care system, like the Netherlands and Scandinavia and England. And we know that about 40%, 40 to 50% of people after 6 to 12 months still have some problems. So about half will recover and probably will recover quite quickly. And the other half will continue to have persistent pain and impact on everyday life. In all, in many cases, it's not that bad that they continue to go back to their doctor or physio, but if you ask them, they still have some pain. So it's quite it's quite in in half of people it's quite a, a long term thing. We don't know much beyond that, so we don't know much beyond a year how many will then go on to have surgical interventions because usually people don't have surgery within six to twelve months. It often takes. A lot longer. So people go to their GP and then they go to a physio and then he comes back again and they go to another physiotherapy and then they, they get an injection. And so they, they rumble on for quite a long time. And by the time they get to the surgeon, and that's where that ceasefire trial is, they will already have had lots of conservative treatments. Um, and, and we now know also from studies in Finland that at that stage, the benefit of surgery, on average, is is not really worthwhile. There might be people who benefit from surgery, but we don't really know which subgroup that is. So we know that the average effect is small, but there's a lot of variability. So some people might actually benefit and other people might actually just have disadvantage or even harm from surgery so the research that we've recently started and we've got funding for um, a seven-year program if all goes well because it's phased funding but and that seven-year program um, first of all is going to look at the data from existing trials so we hope to get the seesaw data but also data from finland and other countries where we want to put all of that data together and see, well, can we predict who benefits from surgery and who doesn't, who benefits from an injection and doesn't, who benefits from exercise so that we get a bit closer to understanding who, what works for whom and is there indeed a subgroup where you would need to refer them on to surgery and maybe even sooner rather than later. And the other thing we're doing within that program grant is set up a new large cohort study where we're going to follow people just observationally. There's no intervention in there at all, apart from what they would normally get anyway. But we follow them up for three years um, to see who, who develops chronic pain, who goes on to receive surgery and other types of interventions. And again, we try to develop a prediction model, try to develop something that can help identify early on who is likely to develop persistent pain and disability. And then once we've sort of like have identified a risk screening tool and we know from the trial data who might benefit most from what type of treatment, we're going to put that together into a stratified care intervention and do a trial. But that's, I mean, that's three years from now when we start that. So so the question about who benefits from surgery or from other types of treatments for shoulder pain is, is what we try to answer, but we don't know yet.
0: That was Danielle van der Vint, Professor of Primary Care Epidemiology at Keele University. Great. So our recommendation then brings this all together and uh, came up with a sort of guideline for people. Yeah, so it
1: made a strong recommendation because... Um, the evidence was quite clear, it was high quality evidence that they they focused in on. Um, so particularly uh, when they looked at the trials that used sham surgery um, as a comparison, um, and, and bigger numbers and, and various other methodological features that those results were very key. We had good information on the minimally important differences and the patients that were involved in the panel sort of validated um, that um, and Overall, they felt that almost all patients would place um, high value on avoiding the the potential harms of surgery, even though they're small and rare, because basically it doesn't work very well. Mm. Um, so that's why it's a strong recommendation against rather than things being quite uncertain or there being quite a wide variation in what people might value or um, yeah, how they might experience it differently.
2: So I think this is a really good... When people say to me, can you practice evidence-based medicine? I go, well, certainly you can, because um, I, I'm going to my own experience. He ha- I had my shoulder problem. Uh, I didn't go to the GP, I am a GP, but I went to the evidence. And actually, the early evidence showed there were randomised controlled trials. One was done in Oxford showing there was no benefit. Now you've seen the emergence of the systematic reviews confirming that with a larger sample size, and then this guideline basically saying to you that actually most patients would choose to avoid surgery. And that's what I've done. Mm. And so that's evidence-based practice, isn't it?
1: So in the linked editorial, um, it says the NHS has labelled this procedure as of limited value and is actually consulting on decommissioning it. But the people writing this editorial, who are orthopaedic surgeons, also issue some kind of caution. So, So from their perspective they conclude by saying that it may not be beneficial to patients and the studies that have been done have asked the right questions but their purpose should be to inform rather than dictate practice which I think is quite an interesting statement.
2: There comes a point though when you know you can't just have a world where you go we have treatments that have no effect And we should inform people of whether we should use them or not. There just is not unlimited resources. The problem is, what does it take to roll back something when you're already out there? Mm. And it's often people say it's got not to be not effective. It's almost got to be harmful and then we'll stop doing it. And you haven't proved it's harmful yet, so we'll carry on. In fact, if you look in the research recommendations, they say we need to do an individual patient data analysis. That's a good idea. Try and identify are there any subgroups who might benefit? and then inform them of future trials.
1: So what you're saying, Carl, is that you would support stopping this and saying um, if we're going to start looking into it afresh, you start from a in-research perspective rather than it happening haphazardly in clinical practice and not really collecting the data to then inform future Yeah, and
2: what's, ha- what's difficult is what's the, the best alternative. So what's quite difficult here is when it says exercise and physiotherapy it's quite hard to go and say, well, let's look at the evidence and look at which exercises might you do. And I've been on the YouTube looking at the exercises, (laughs) trying them out. I try my N of 1 studies where I say for a month, I'm going to try this. And actually it's quite interesting. So the bit that's missing as well is where's the resource or the alternative treatments? And then what we need is a resource that says, Here's the videos, here's how you do it, here's 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 the stuff you might try and, and a, a sense of how you might understand how you're getting better. Hmm.
1: And the, the this is one limitation really of the approach that we've done within ra- rapid recommendations that we were Only able to look at this. Only one limitation. Just one limitation um, which is that the questions that we look at are quite are quite narrow and there is a lot of uncertainty then if you're saying take surgery off the table what are the remaining options for, for people in that situation and the whole field I think of research around this condition about the alternatives such as injections or painkillers or exercise um, that you might do self-directed or manual therapy or physiotherapy mm-hmm. There's not a great evidence base around those interventions either.
2: And the issue is, this is a serious point, which which for me, uh, my exercise is tapping on the computer. For some people, it's very labour-intensive, manual-intensive. This is a painful condition. Mm. And actually, for different subgroups, the problem is greater or less, and that's important in what you decide to do and offer. Yes. Good.
1: So there you go. Thank you. That was something to stop, in our opinion.
0: <laughs> so that's stopping doing sol- shoulder surgery for impingement. Now, um, something else where the alternative uh, that you might want to do is perhaps lacking evidence um, is statin. So Carl, uh, you've got one of your EBM verdicts on this.
2: Yeah, so this is not something to stop or start doing. This is something to be fully informed. And this is a paper that was published in The Lancet on the efficacy and safety of statin therapy in older people. It was Can a me- we just
1: recap initially on where the gaps are, what uncertainties is trying to narrow down?
2: OK, so look, statins have proved to be pretty controversial, haven't they? They've been around now for 30-plus years. And we're still uncertain, particularly about the benefit-to-harm balance in primary prevention. That's people who haven't already had a heart attack or a cardiovascular event. Particularly in low-risk individuals, of which I'm still one. Mm -hmm. But my risk is going up with age, Mm because that's your biggest risk factor. And in the elderly, there's still uncertainty. So
1: these, when we say elderly, we're talking about over 75s, over eighty. Yeah,
2: I think it's slightly different. But I'd say in the UK, we're talking about over 75-year-olds. And this Lancet meta-analysis... Because they
1: are going to be, by definition, high-risk, surely.
2: Well, that's the interesting issue, isn't it? And we make these assumptions. You're at higher risk, but not necessarily high risk. And so it's interesting when you start to think about that, tease that out. The question is, could you reduce uncertainties with this meta-analysis? And this
1: would be about whether you should start a statin if you're over 75, for example, or if you should continue it. Yeah. Because you're already on it for something. And you haven't had a heart attack or a stroke. Yeah.
2: So look, these are interested in the five-year follow-up. Their outcomes were major coronary events, non-fatal MI, or coronary death. So that's the primary outcome. But look at what the study concludes. This is the bit that's interested me. Statin therapy produces significant reductions in major vascular events, irrespective of age. But there is less direct evidence of benefit among patients older than 75 years who do not already have evidence of occlusive vascular disease. What
1: does that mean in plain English? Do
2: you know, this is the bit that really gets on my nerves, actually. It actually is is open to interpretation. And if I put that to different people, some people will think that, treat everybody. Some people in their editorials will write, everybody should be treated. And what we do, is go and use some basic evidence-based skills and calculate the absolute risk difference and the number needed to treat, as opposed to what's reported in this paper, is just purely relative risk. And I think when you do that, you come to different conclusions. So look, it says, Benefit among patients older than 75 years who do not already have evidence of occlusive vascular disease is a bit less. Now we calculated the number needed to treat in over seventy fives without vascular disease for major ve- vascular events. The number needed to treat is four hundred and forty six people to get one person benefit, and it's also not significant. so you might I mean actually by not significant. well, what it means is that that the the line of no effect crosses one, so it, it okay. it's the is it means that not only is you me benefit some people you may actually be harming people because you're still uncertain about the benefits but the actual benefit was 0.22 percent that's the absolute benefit as opposed to a relative risk reduction of eight percent so
1: how would you put that into a normal sentence if if i'm an over 75 year old lady saying should i take this
2: yeah so if you take something like a thousand people yeah on average about two people would benefit would have would have less vascular events, but it's not significant, so it may be more people be harmed slightly less, but we're so not I might, sure. I might, I might have might, a benefit in the
1: region a,
2: of yeah, two, two the per thousand. thousand. But if you look at your impact on death, actually, it's even less, so it maybe is about one to two per thousand, but again, it's not significant. Again,
0: mm. so Carl, um you've done that has turned that relative into an absolute risk and obviously we know that patients and certainly I can understand that much better but if you are a GP or, or a clinician out there who's got a paper in front of them with that relative risk in there how do you kind of quickly or you know the the maths is quite difficult how do you turn that into something that you yeah. can actually talk to patients so that's about? a
2: really difficult one because all journals just seemingly put relative risk and it's outrageous to do that and analysis show it's about less than 10 percent of journal articles produce absolute effects so it's a systemic problem the most important thing is to look at the baseline risk and the baseline risk in an over 70 year, five year old without vascular disease in the next five years was 6%.
1: So you pick that off Q-risk or whatever.
2: Yeah, no, it was in the studies. Oh, it was in the studies. You look it? at the control event rate. Okay. The first thing you do is look at the control event rate. And it's 6%, so 6 per 100. So once you're talking about 10 or 20% reductions, you're going to be going no more than 6 to 5 wherever you go. Mm. So actually, you can start to understand the benefits are not that great. Even if it was from 6 to 5%, that means for every 100 people, one person will benefit. Not a great effect. And I think asking this simple question, what's the baseline risk? And you want to know that for everything, don't you, really, before you put a treatment in place. That's the simplest way to understand the amount of benefits. And that's what we teach people. What happens if you do nothing?
0: So that's interesting as well when you go back and, and talk to about, you know, this whole the surgery thing we were, we were talking about at the beginning, and even if there is, you know, some good evidence, some strong recommendation from us, there is people seemingly uh, worried about this. So, do I we think know about- I think it would about... be
1: interesting to do a rapid recommendation on this, pa- on this paper, and in fact, I've suggested that we do, um, because I think it would be interesting to see those absolute numbers written out, as we might, um, but also to add in a couple of other features. One is that this paper, um, Is talking about the potential benefits but doesn't necessarily address harms as as much as it could Um, and the second um is that it hasn't added in those extra things that we just talked about the minimally important differences um and the and the preferences in general of um men and women who are older so it'd be interesting to add those those angles so
2: there's so there's a real it's interesting there's a linked editorial in this piece that says the challenge for the healthcare profession and the media is to convey risks and benefits in ways that patients can understand enabling them to make an informed choice so i'm like well actually there are loads of ways of doing that but the article didn't do any of them the question is what we're trying to really interested in and you point is can you do it really quickly so it's great you're doing a rapid recommendation, but mm-hmm. hey, it's not going to help me tomorrow. No. But actually, even if you were doing this, is this is a real task for journal editors. It should be happening, shouldn't it? It should be saying, we're going to provide this information in a way that helps inform decisions. There's a reluctance to do that because absolute fe- effects just do not look as good as relative risks. And I ask a colleague of mine, Kamala on, do you
1: think that that's just general editors or do you think the researchers don't like seeing that with their own numbers anyway?
2: Yeah, no, it's, it's a sort of spin that occurs when you do your research. You go, ooh, 20% risk reduction. That looks great. Let's put that in the paper. It goes out for peer review. Peer reviewers don't pick it up and go, oh, actually, I like the relative, but could you provide absolute risks... And it can't. And then the journal editor publishes it, and a press release comes out: twenty percent risk reduction. Newspapers uh, then propagate that story, and it goes on and on. And it exaggerates the effect size, despite the fact Consort says you should put relative and absolute measures in the paper.
0: So again, we you know earlier we talked about the kind of natural history of it, and it seems that relative benefit for over seventy fives is is not as, as great as people might have thought. So again, is this a question where we need to, to go back and look at the natural history of some of these things?
2: I think there are two, two important issues. First is to say um, our skill deficit in understanding and quantifying benefits and harms. And I think that's a real issue for clinic, clinicians and patients. And then second is understanding how we communicate that evidence. And so I, I'm really interested in how we fix this Um, And there are huge problems because we're overwhelmed with evidence. It's not more evidence, more information. It's actually providing it in a way that actually we can understand and and apply.
0: So we've had two things there. Statins for over 75s and shoulder surgery. To this month to potentially stop doing. Thanks, Carl and Helen, for bringing them together. Right, now it's on to the bit that I've heard people are enjoying and looking out for, which is our rant of the week. Carl, who has got something that's caught their eye that they want to set forth (laughs) about?
2: Look, um, I read this paper about, um, it was a feature in the news, the future of doctors' Messes, and gosh, that took me back in time. And going back now, twenty plus years, when I was a doctor in the good old days, when we had a real mess, and not a mess in terms mm-hmm. of healthcare, but a doctor's mess. And actually, it was a really functioning place. And but I guess this is an era be- before the internet, before WhatsApp and tweeting and tweeting and all of the social media that occurs. We also had doctors had uh, when you were a junior doctor, you had a place to live for a year. On site, and every time you did overnights, you'd have accommodation. So, I guess my point was I read this and I thought, hmm, this is interesting. Everything's changing. This is outrageous. And then actually, I started to think about it because I thought, well, the world's changing. The hours have changed. Everything's changed. So, my point was to say, my bit of a rant to say is, if we're going to want these things or do these things, it can't be based on personal experience. In fact, I think we need a real evaluative approach and an evidence based approach to understanding what makes the work environment tick better what makes our jobs better and the welfare of of, all doctors and nurses better off in the NHS
0: how would you go about measuring some of these things because it seems self-evident but again this is not what this podcast is about but that like a nice environment around you feels nicer and that has a kind of you know that effect but you know how would you go about? back yeah, so, this?
2: so look obviously we're not going to go dive in right for a randomized controlled trial ethical approval systematic review and a rapid recommendation that's not going to happen but you have to ask when people say these things simple things like let's have some evidence how often is it being used And have some evaluation in that way. You said, in terms of it's being used, what's the value to individuals? And can you get a survey? So actually, there's real value in doing these things. And then also trying to understand what's the potential opportunities or alternatives. We talked about this in shoulder surgery. What are the alternatives? Would you rather have a doctor's mess? Or actually, what about if we had a gym? On site, Would that be better for you at lunchtime or in the day while you're at work, so if you had half an hour off? And I think these are the questions we want to ask with some evidence, and we want an environment in the NHS that sees an upward cycle of improvement in terms of welfare and benefits, but we're not going to do it by just writing a little news article and saying, well, I think we should have doctor's messes and they should be paid for.
0: It's true, and what, even if it says that a doctor's mess is a good thing, you know, I... there is a lot that can happen within that it can be a big space with you know computers and things for people to to be able to access stuff in it or it could be a very quiet space where you go and and are able to have a a nap or something i suppose the subgroup analysis of that kind of thing would uh, would be informative <laughs> as well
2: i think these are important and i think it also is important for the 24 hour seven nature of the nhs You know, in the middle of the day, some of these things are not as important as the evenings and particularly the nights, where I have to admit, as I've got older, I am the worst night doctor on this planet and I work till 11 o'clock and then I get very grouchy in urgent care. And if I'm asked to work beyond that, Mm. I actually am dysfunctional.
1: And I think that a lot of the shift patterns have changed, haven't they, within um, hospital, moving away from an on-call system where you're... Sort of resting and then someone might interrupt you towards a system where you're more thinking that you are on duty and actively working for the entire time that you're on Mm. shift um and i think even knowing that you've got the other half of the day off it, it can be quite hard to function all the way through the night even if you're not then working all the way through the day or well, my body clock certainly uh, used to find that very difficult when I was in hospital and just even if you're not actually sleeping just actually being able to lie down somewhere at 3 or four thirty in the morning mm-hmm. Um, because you feel pretty strange and <laughs> well
2: i'm going to get you to get the violins out here because i'm going to take you back before the 2000 contract when in the Canada. working time directive um i worked at the radcliffe infirmary there as an shr we used to start at nine o'clock saturday morning on the weekend shift and we finished at five o'clock monday and i have to say that was a pretty long shift yeah but your point is dead right in that point you you needed rest, you needed somewhere to sleep. It was just ridiculous to be assuming that actually you could just carry on for 56 hours. So I think, but in shift patterns, but I still think it's important, this idea of some evidence about what works and what doesn't, and that should be rooted in any decision.
0: It's quite interesting. I mean, this is a difficulty um, around a lot of things where practice and what we do has shifted beyond the evidence. The evidence that has not sort of kept up with what do night shifts do and and how's that best you know what's the effect of that and the outcomes of that and how do we get back to a point where we can kind of then reset and and maybe you know start that sort of evidence journey again you know start the like from now on we're making these decisions based on this
2: Well I think there are other industries that do this and and think we are a learning technology innovative, workspace and in that space we look after our workers and i think we've lost that one is because the nhs is so massive two is everything's so disparate so many people work in different parts of the system and so they don't feel as a collective team working together and but i think um, we're seeing meetings that people realize if you don't do that your workforce will leave and they'll they'll vote with their feet so my point is to say i'm all for welfare But I think we have to do it with an evidence-based approach, but we seem to be resistant to that, and it's a combination of collecting some quantitative data and alongside that a bit of qualitative data. Oh, my gosh, an evidence-based man saying qualitative work, but it's really (laughs) important sometimes. You said it, you know, this is, you know, why is this helpful? What are the features that work for you? But I do think we have to value the workforce, but not in a way where we just have people telling us their opinions
1: and value the workforce because ultimately that's going to impact on patient outcomes
2: yeah i'm a big fan of uh, all the things that have gone well and 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 effective and this is qualitative information is where people work together as a team stay for the long course and enjoy the environment they work in It's, it's just that's pretty obvious isn't it you don't but but actually what do we provide for them I see not much, actually. It's
0: true. And this is part of our well-being campaign that the BMJ is running at the moment, is talking about many of these things and trying to you know find some evidence, uh, pull together what's what's useful, what works, what doesn't. Well, that would so be
2: really interesting to see. We'll look at that back in one of our We shall roundups.
0: do in the future. Now, Carl, talking about... The difficulty of applying evidence or a dearth of evidence in a place where there is an obvious need. You were on Panorama talking about hormone therapy for transgender people. It's a very difficult topic and you've you've written a blog on this sort of trying to really neutrally pull out what is the evidence base. for for treatments that we have at the moment.
2: Yeah, so I was approached, actually, uh, this happens a lot to me, and uh, I got approached by Panorama by Dr. Faye Kirkland. And and what happens is, I guess, they go into these difficult topics, which is gender dysphoria, when a person's experience or discomfort or distress is a sort of mismatch between their biological sex and their gender identity. Particularly this is in children and adolescents. And they go in to do these investigations, and they get to a point where they go oh, we've been looking at the evidence and one person is saying this and another person is saying that. And they're using the same piece of evidence in in completely opposite viewpoints, which you can do that with evidence. And so we get asked to look at the evidence and try and assess what the evidence says. We do that in a way where we're very systematic. We focus on the systematic reviews and then we drill down to the individual studies in them reviews. And in this, we found two systematic reviews in children and adolescents of the hormones used to block or suppress puberty. And they're called puberty blockers. And then the second is the gender affirming hormones, which enhance some of the sexual characteristics or biological characteristics of may it be male or female. And ask simple questions like, what's the quality of the evidence how well does it inform the benefits and the harms? And have you got sufficient information and evidence to inform decision-making? In the programme, I thought was very balanced. I think they did a really good job. But what, what our review shows is in this area, we really are operating in the dark in that people are sort of experimenting in a way and they're not collective the information the evidence so it's very piecemeal it's all retrospective what do you mean
1: they're experimenting
2: well we assume in medicine we 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 do all treatments because they've been uh, researched in an evidence-based way but in children many treatments are off-label off and are used in a way that they haven't got a license for from the regulator or you may be using treatments in gender dysphoria and what you're doing is using that treatment because it's coming from a, the evidence is coming from a different area like adults. Okay. And then you're giving it tr- children, and there's nothing to stop me and you as a GP doing this tomorrow, prescribing, and that's what the program shows is a GP prescribing these treatments and giving them out. And what tends to happen is five or six years in, people then say, "Oh, but now we need to start collecting evidence and understand what we're doing." And I think this is an approach to medicine that's become difficult for me to rationalise that it's appropriate, that we can just use medicines because we think they're a good idea or because patients want them. We should start out in an evidence-based way where we go, actually, if we're going to do this, we're going to collect information on every person who goes through this service, is treated in this way, so we can fully inform the next person about the benefits and harms. Not just the retrospective, the 10 or 20 percent of people we've got in our sample. And when you look at the evidence, it's one of the poorest bodies of evidence I've ever seen to inform decision making in a field. It mm-hmm. really is bad. there are there are no clinical trials, there are no randomized control trials. We only found two studies that actually used case control methods to say let's match these children to these children on treatment and off treatment and actually the matching was terrible so
1: so what are the research questions that need to be answered well you want to know
2: particularly does it deliver the intended effects and is it safe and when you consider about these powerful children the safety issues are significant when you're still in puberty and you're still growing there are concerns about the effect on cognition and brain function There are concerns about cardiovascular disease. There are concerns about your bone growth and your bone mineral density and osteoporosis. And there will be certainly concerns about the medium to long-term effects. Add all that together, that's deeply concerning. Mm. So you really, one of the things is want to know, well, actually, can I clearly inform, if you come and want to decide to do this, this, Is you understand fully the benefits and harms. And we came to a conclusion and said that's not possible at the moment in time
1: it's just all too uncertain
2: it's too uncertain and it's not been collected systematically so what should you do in that space you should put that in research you should be in a study Hmm. and everybody should understand that and you're going to be followed up and it's
1: just a bit of a disconnect isn't there between what's happening in clinical practice and then when those uncertainties are arising knowing how to conceive a study or who to contact or how to highlight that you've got a problem.
2: Well, it's also a disconnect when you have new areas that you're providing medicine in or new technologies, that what we shouldn't do is be simply just rolling out technologies and then going five, six years down the line, oh, we now have a problem. And so, Why
1: why is this suddenly becoming an issue now?
2: Well, the National Identity Clinic in the UK was only set up in 2011, and it's because of greater awareness and greater understanding of the issues Mm. and at the moment the problem is there's been an exponential increase in referrals and actually there's a 20-month waiting list and so people are doing all sorts of things like going I'm gonna go to the internet or I'm gonna go to private doctors to get treatment in some countries in the world they're lowering the age to 12 or even less to start treatment because the idea is if you block and suppress puberty then you'll get less of the characteristics or once you go through puberty you you have have a more successful transition so you can understand the desire the issue is how should we operate in these spaces and one of the things i said is this is an area where we need a regulator to actually protect patients but also to protect doctors because i don't think it's right as a gp i should be able to say the guidelines actually say i can treat from the age of 12 which is what they do and I'm according to the guidelines if I'm operating within them guidelines. A regulator would mm-hmm. say, actually, this is not appropriate for general practitioners to prescribe this. So there's a complete evidence void in this area which does concern me. Thank you.
0: And That's uh, uh, an interesting look at the evidence away from the the, the argument around, you know, who is appropriate for the service, who isn't. It, it's really about whoever this is about making the best treatment choices for them. And Yeah, Yeah, that's really important.
2: I think that's an important issue. As opposed to inferring you said your own opinions or beliefs, I don't do that. We just sit in the middle and go, Well how can we reduce uncertainties for people to make better decisions? What does it look like?
0: Great. Well Carl Helen, thank you very much for coming in and having another fascinating talk. Well, welcome
2: back to the UK, Duncan.
0: I'm. I can't say I'm enjoying. We missed it. you. Though uh, <laughs> <laughs> the sun is um, over here seems a little bit more terrifying in a way than it does in, in Australia. That's it for this EBM roundup for March. Uh, we'll be back next month again, looking at what's happening in. The well, world I thought we were looking
2: at overdiagnosis, treatment screening, special issue. Can't wait
0: yeah it should be really interesting and we've got uh, other fascinating people to talk to about that so if you've got any questions that you want to put to carl helen or potentially some other experts about overdiagnosis overscreening anything like that do get in touch with us if you go to bmj.com/podcasts you can find all the details there also Whilst you're listening to this, if you want to rate and review us, that's really useful. It helps other people to find us. Um, Tweet, do everything, get out there let the world know that we are here talking about eBay. Yes, please. So, it's bye from me. Bye from me.
1: And bye from me.